Well, hello, and thank you for listening to the Chiropractic Research Podcast Series. My name is Dr. Dean Smith. I am a clinical faculty member in the Department of Kinesiology and Health at Miami University, and I'm also a chiropractor in Eaton, Ohio. My research interests relate to understanding how chiropractic affects motor control and human performance. Thanks so much to all the listeners of the podcast out there. If this is your first time listening to the podcast, thanks for joining in. I really appreciate all the great reviews on iTunes and the feedback from every one of you. If you like listening to the podcast, please leave a great review on iTunes so we can attract even more chiropractors to listen to the best in chiropractic research. I read all of the feedback that I get and wanted to share one with you. It's from Dr. Joel Weisberg from Downsview Chiropractic in Toronto. He says, your podcasts cover a lot of territory, but your conversational tone keeps the content very accessible. Really enjoying them. Thanks, Dr. Weisberg, and thanks again to everyone for listening. As you may know, my goals for producing these research interviews are, one, to get the word out about chiropractic research from the experts that are actually doing the research. Two, to encourage collaboration of researchers. And three, to motivate and assist practitioners and students alike to pursue research careers in chiropractic science. I'd also like to point out that Chiropractic Science has partnered with chirocredit.com to make these podcasts possible. Well, let's get on with the interview with William Weeks, MD, PhD, MBA. I am really excited that in this interview, we'll discuss topics such as healthcare delivery science, value in spine care, how doctors of chiropractic supply healthcare services, how patients use such services, and how best to integrate services with other healthcare providers. Dr. Weeks is a professor of psychiatry and of community and family medicine at the Giesel School of Medicine at Dartmouth. There he works at the Dartmouth Institute for Health Policy and Clinical Practice as a senior research scientist where he teaches in the master's programs and conducts research on health economics, healthcare value, the complementary and alternative medicine market, and geographic variation in health services utilization in France. Dr. Weeks has published over 150 peer-reviewed manuscripts examining economic and business aspects of healthcare services, utilization, and delivery, physicians' return on educational investment, healthcare delivery science, and healthcare value. He received his MD from the University of Texas medical branch at Galveston, his MBA from Columbia University, and his PhD in economics from A. Marseille uh, School of Economics and Management. Dr. Weeks has been honored with the 2009 National Rural Health Association Outstanding Researcher Award and the 2016 Jerome F. McAndrews Award for Excellence in Research from the National Chiropractic Mutual Insurance Corporation. During 2016, Dr. Weeks uh, holds the Fulbright Tocqueville Distinguished Chair at A. Marseille University. Dr. Weeks, it's such an honor to have you on the Chiropractic Science Podcast. Oh, thanks so much, Dean. It's really a great pleasure to be here. Great. Well, let's go ahead. Uh, we've got a, a good agenda today of things to get through. So first off, I'm I'm curious how you became interested in becoming a medical doctor. So, yeah, I, I think I gravitated toward medical school and thinking about becoming a medical doctor as a kid because I liked science. And so I went to school and I liked science. I did well in science classes and 
my teachers always said, well, you should be a doctor. So I thought, well, that might be a good idea. It might be interesting. So actually, when I was in high school, a friend of mine and I uh, worked worked as orderlies in a children's hospital in Oklahoma City. And we our job was to go get the patients uh, and bring them down for surgery or the uh, you know, hold them in the uh, pre-op room, and then we would also turn over the rooms. We would clean the rooms, the ORs, and uh, and get them ready for the next patient. So in that process, uh, this was a long time ago, and this could never ever happen <laughs> again with the, the way HIPAA rules have evolved and different rules. But uh, uh, back then, you know, we were two young, interested kids who were interested in medicine. And uh, so after we would clean the rooms and turn them over, they would let us first let us watch the surgeries and then actually let us scrub into the surgeries and sometimes hand them instruments and things like that. So I just got really excited about all of that and decided uh, that I would pursue medical school. So I went to college at Whitman College and graduated there and got into medical school at University of Texas Medical Branch and uh, went there. Galveston is on the beach of Texas and it was just a Really, if you're forced to go to four years of medical school, that's the place to do it. It's just <laughs> so uh, we you know, we had the beach was two blocks away, and the cool thing about University of Texas at Galveston was that it was the Cherry Hospital at the time for all of Texas. So we saw some of the most you know rare and bizarre kinds of diseases and conditions that you would ever run across. A lot of people go through their whole medical experiences and never see such things, and we saw them kind of regularly. So it was really cool and fun to do that. But then uh, I, I liked a variety of things. I actually liked uh, surgery and neurosurgery quite a bit. But at the time, I, uh, my, my wife, who was a year older than me in medical school, um, became pregnant. And uh, so she was going into psychiatry. So I kind of thought, well, I'll do psychiatry for a while and see how that works. Um, just because it's kind of, uh, you can be, it's easier to be a dad, I think, than be a psychiatrist than it is to be a dad. And, be a neurosurgeon. Although you might you might mess up your kids equally in either field. <laughs> think about it. So uh, so we uh, so I, I pursued psychiatry and uh, and uh, did that and 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 I think what you were kind of wondering about uh, maybe how long I was in practice and things like that. So I I actually did clinical practice for only about five years in a VA. It's a four year uh, residency program. I really fell in love with working with veterans my last year of the residency program, and there was an opening in the local VA here. I love living in the Dartmouth area. It's just a beautiful place and a great uh, area to raise kids and very kind of intellectually stimulating, too. So I took this job and worked for about five years in clinical work uh, and then uh, got in an MBA, I was interested in kind of administration and thinking about policy and how policies might actually have a bigger impact than, than clinical care because you affect, you know, tens of thousands, if not millions of people with policy decisions. So and I kind of, I thought, I thought back then, this was in 1996, I had this inkling that uh, healthcare financing was out of control and that we're going to have to get some kind of uh, understanding of how the money works to get a handle on healthcare in this country. And so that's what I did. I went to Columbia for a couple of years and got an MBA. And then since then, I've been really mostly focused on uh, research. Uh, I do still do some clinical work where I am a, uh, I'm an addiction psychiatrist. So I'm board certified in general psychiatry and also in uh, addiction psychiatry. 
And so I do uh, taboxone treatment, which is treatment of opiates, you know, people who are addicted to opiates. And that kind of ties into my research interests in um, chiropractic because I would say 75% of the patients that I see were started, you know, they, they came in with some kind of a legitimate uh, pain, some kind of an injury or something like that. Uh, physicians like me put them on opiates. They got hooked on the opiates. They started using more opiates, and maybe the physicians gave them more for a while, and the physicians got upset with them because they were abusive of the opiates, and so they basically would cut them off. And the patients would find that they could go get opiates on the street, and then they would find that heroin is a lot cheaper than the pill form that they were taking, and then they would get really messed up and get hooked on heroin for a really long time, and it messed up their lives, and it contributes to a kind of black economy. And, uh, and I think that uh, for, for back and spine pain and, and other joint pains, which are the most common reason people come in for pain uh, in America, chiropractic is a pretty good alternative to controlling the pain. And one of the beauties is that you don't prescribe opiates. So this whole opportunity of getting hooked on really highly addictive medications that are pretty dangerous and can be pretty disruptive to people's lives just doesn't happen with chiropractic. And that's a beautiful thing. So I think when we think about effectiveness and value in healthcare, we think about not only what works, but what kind of what kind of potential harms are we avoiding by taking one path versus another? And I think a big, huge harm to avoid is, you know, the potential for opiate addiction. And I think you, know, you see it all over the place now with the, the statistics that have been coming out and, and the Obama administration's real interest in, in getting a handle on the opiate addiction problem in America is that, you know, chiropractic might be a decent solution to help uh, certainly be involved in that, in, in addressing that issue. Wow, that's really fascinating. Um everything that you've said uh, certainly it's a, a really hot topic everybody's talking about the opiate issue these days and uh it's interesting to hear your personal experience with it as well so you've authored over 150 publications in the in the best peer reviewed journals and have worked in a multidisciplinary environment during this interview we're going to discuss some really important issues facing uh, not only chiropractic, but healthcare in general. And I'm really excited to get your perspective on everything. So we'll just go ahead and get started. So I've got some key, key things that I want to talk about. And the first one is getting your idea about, uh, well, first of all, what is healthcare delivery science? And then what can we do with that? Yeah, so healthcare delivery science is... Um uh, trying to figure out really the understanding between health and healthcare, uh, and, and to bring a kind of a scientific discipline to that. The, the problem is that uh, you know healthcare systems are failing, and we as a country are spending an inordinate amount of money on healthcare, and we're not getting back a good return on that investment. When you look, you know, we we spend. Uh, about uh, 40 or 50 percent more than the per capita as a percentage of our GDP um, on healthcare than the next uh, most expensive country in the world. And so we need to kind of get a, uh, a handle on that because uh, that's actually 
undermining our economy. I think it was a long time ago, I remember, this is probably 15 years ago, when the uh, chairman of General Motors stood up and said, you know, we spend more on health care in every, in every car that we produce than we do on steel. It's part of the car. So it, it makes us uncompetitive as a country to spend that much money, particularly if we're not getting a return, it might be, the return might be on, you know, longer lives or health, uh, healthier lives or less obesity or just uh, actually some some countries are using as a metric kind of, do you feel good? Do you, do, are you happy? Kind of. And we're not getting those kind of returns at all. So um, what, what we found is that, you know, if you look, one key finding is, is that understanding that the, the production of health is not just a function of health care, right? That, uh, there's a, some, what's called the Evans and Stoddard field model of health, and uh, health has multiple determinants, and they include things like genetics and your, your biology and your environment, your physical environment, where you live, and basically, you know, whether you're wealthier or not, um, and health care is one component of that, but but not even the defining one. So much else goes into production of health that healthcare kind of uh, contributes, but is not necessarily at all the defining aspect of, uh, of production of health. But when we look at what we want to do, since healthcare is so expensive, we should at least use the resources efficiently in the pursuit of health when we're investing in healthcare. So what we found is that it's expensive, it's inequitable, it's delivered in unfair ways, it's fragmented. There's, you know, almost an exclusive uh, uh, focus on treatment after the problem has occurred as opposed to the kind of much wiser, and from an investment perspective, the wiser approach of um, prevention. Um, and, uh, and you just don't find that there's a lot of good uh, managerial practices in place. Um, we find that there's, you know, across the world, there's a, a big mismatch between supply and demand. But you even find that in the kind of work we've done at Dartmouth, that uh, supplies can induce demand. So a big concern in the U.S., where we have high health care expenses, um, is that there's overuse of a lot of health care. And that there's a guy, Jack Winberg, here who kind of defined... Uh, geographic variation in healthcare, and has been working on this for 40 years at Dartmouth. And he says, in, when it comes to healthcare, geography is destiny. And so, if you live in a certain area, you're just much more likely to get certain amounts and types of care than if you live in a different area. And there's no evidence to show that the people who get more actually have better outcomes. So they get more stuff. They actually get, they don't get any more treatments that have been proven to be effective. They get more uh, tasks done, they get more diagnoses, they get more um, uh, x-rays and things like that. They have more visits with different physicians. Their care is actually more fragmented and less coordinated, and they have worse outcomes. So the idea is to try to study this from a healthcare delivery science perspective, put a microscope on how the healthcare is actually delivered, understand the variables that go into the product, you know, the production of healthcare uh, delivery, and look at the impact on important outcomes and figure out what is efficient 
what is worth spending money on, what is redundant and is not worth spending money on, and what could be cut out of, as waste and not done and actually reduce costs and improve outcomes and thereby improve the efficiency and value that our healthcare system provides us. Wow, that that is spectacular. <laughs> My mouth was hanging open the whole time you were talking about that. So just to follow up a little bit on that, so it, if I understand what you're saying correctly, if, if there was a, a metro area, for example, that had a lot of neurosurgeons in, in the local area, then uh, what you're saying, it seems to be that uh, people would have more, more neurosurgeries. Is that basically the gist of it? Yeah, yeah, but they would be neurosurgeries. They're not going to have more brain tumors. They're kind of random and unfortunate. But they might be more likely to have more back surgeries, things that are elective. Yeah. Things that uh, are, you know, you can, you can make more money on them. The hospital is incentivized to use their, uh, their so-called fixed assets efficiently. Hospital fixed, uh, fixed costs in the hospital are huge. And the way the hospitals make money is to increase throughput. So the more cases they can see, the more efficiently they can use these fixed assets, the more profitable they can become profitable. I mean, hospitals aren't necessarily a high profit margin industry, but uh, so they every uh, every kind of case counts. So they want to have throughput. They want to get patients uh, through in these uh, in those conditions. So they want to use their neurosurgeons. Productively, the surgeons like to do surgery, and that's what they're good at, and that's what they've been trained to do. So they or the orthopedic surgeons will be doing more uh, back surgeries. And, uh, you know, thresholds are pretty different in different parts of the country. And, indeed, one thing that's been repeatedly found is that patients aren't necessarily all that involved in the decision-making. And that you can show patients, you can, sh- you can show physicians x-rays of patients who have back problems or hip problems and say to them, who is eligible for, for a back surgery or for a hip surgery? And the doctors will say, well, these people are. And it's a much higher proportion than patients who have had these x-rays who actually want that surgery. So the challenge is to, to kind of contain, to make sure the patient's voice is heard and to make sure that their options are laid out for different treatment options when there is what you call preference-sensitive care. Now, if you have, like I said, if, you have, if you're in a car accident and you have trauma, that's not going to be involved. You're just going to get care. If you have a brain tumor, you're going to kind of get the care that they recommend. But if you have what's called preference-sensitive care, where, you know, it's like you brought a back surgery, it's hip replacements, it's knee replacements, it's actually some uh, other modalities of just pain control, like with chiropractic, where you might have different treatment options. So back pain, you can get surgery, you can get medications, you can get chiropractic, you can get watchful waiting, you can get an exercise program. And what the key thing is to understand that each of those has different risks and benefits, and that probably to best serve our patients, our clients, we should outline for them what those different risks and benefits of those different treatment options are. Not and not just today, but even longer term. You know, like well, you get a lot of people don't get hooked on opiates, but you might. You know, so there might be a longer term consequence. Um, and so uh, we think we can we can walk them through that, and then just kind of help them decide what's best for them, because we understand and we should appreciate and respect that different people have different values and different uh, things are important to them. 
Uh, they, they did a number of studies early on in this at Dartmouth where they looked at uh, uh, prostate cancer. So prostate cancer, uh, or, or actually it was just uh, prostate uh, hypertrophy. So you get an enlarged prostate. It's typical every every man goes through this when they're starting at about 50. They, their prostate gets bigger, and they can have um, some urinary frequency. They can pee more often. They don't pee as much. They can have some erectile problems. They can have some other kind of discomfort from this. And you can get it fixed, but the fixing of it can cause, uh, it could cause impotence. It could cause uh, some uh, inability to control your urine stream and so some incontinence. And so there are some risks to doing this thing that could improve the frequency with which you urinate. And so that might really matter what, what people, how people value whether or not they uh, care about being impotent matters in that decision, right? Uh, and, and so we just kind of help patients decide what does work, what doesn't work, what's the history of what's working, how often does it work, how often are there complications, and then figure, let them figure out what's the best solution for them, and then kind of revisit that every once in a while. And I think with back pain, uh, that, that's something that just doesn't happen a lot. There's not a lot of patient engagement about what are the treatment options. And probably a lot of the back pain, you know, what people get for back pain is determined much more by whether they go to a physician or whether they go to a chiropractor or a physical therapist or to someone who might be advising them at a gym. And, and there was actually a great paper by this guy, uh, a guy, Bronfort, who did a randomized trial where he sent uh, where patients got referred to either medication management, kind of what was called typical management. There were, I think, 90 patients in each arm of the study. So uh, a third went to medication management just to see a physician, a third went to a chiropractor, and a third went to some kind of a uh, exercise, home exercise program that was video uh, you know, supplied or something like that or supported. And, and one thing, so it, they found out that actually the patients who did better that the chiropractic patients and the patients who get the exercise program, their, their pain actually got better over time. Uh, so that's kind of pref was preferential to the medication management at about, I think about 12 weeks or something like that. But one of the things, if you look, it was actually a supplemental paper, and we wrote about this, it was a, it was a supplemental table to the paper. And in the paper, you know, zero of the patients who who got chiropractic and zero of the patients who got the exercise program were put on medications because that, that wasn't an option to them. 98% of the patients who were put, went to medication, medication management were put on medications. And they were put on opiates and benzodiazepines, which are both of which are highly addictive. And if you looked at the, it was fascinating because when you looked at the side effects, whenever they do a randomized control study like this, you know, you have to look at side effects and adverse events. And the side effects and adverse events, the proportion and the types for the chiropractic and for the, uh, the exercise groups were pretty similar. They were, they were basically the people continued to have pain. So if you, you know, sometimes your, your listenership here I know knows this, that if you get adjusted or if you do some exercises that are designed to help your pain, sometimes it hurts more when you're starting it, right? The pain gets a little worse. And that, there were a proportion, I think 30 or 40% where that kind of was the common thing. And, and that did not happen really very often in the group that got the medications. But what happened in the group that got medications was a whole different group of side effects 
which were they got confused, they couldn't sleep well, they couldn't think well, they were uh, distracted. Um, so, you know, constipation is a pretty common side effect of opiate use. And so all of these different side effects happen. And then at the end, like I said, the, the, um, the chiropractic and the exercise group did similarly well and better than the other group. So I think that's the kind of information that needs to go to patients before they choose actually who to go to to get the treatment for back pain. Should they go to a physician who, we're, we give medications, that's kind of what we do. Or should they go to more of a team that is a spine care team that figures out what is the right thing for this patient given their values, given what we know that works, and given what we know about kind of their trajectory of back pain, uh, whether it's acute or chronic, for a given age and population and things like that. Yeah, really good. Um, so that that's a fantastic way to, to get the information to the patients and then creating these teams. So that's certainly one way to help uh, lower the cost and increase access. What are some other ways to try to improve our outcomes? For back pain in particular? Or well, sure, sure. Yeah, sure. Let's We can talk about back pain. I'm just thinking in general, um, you know, if, if we want to get evidence-based kind of care out there and lower costs, increase uh, our outcomes. What, what are some, are there some other ways that we can try to incorporate or does that seem to be the, the best avenue right now, getting to the patients and, and getting care teams like that? Oh, I think there's a variety. I think, I think the key thing to getting, so I think what we, we're obliged to do is tell patients what their treatment options are and what works. So kind of fundamental to that is understanding what works. And uh, there's a guy, Jim Weinstein, who is the president of Dartmouth-Hitchcock, who I work with a lot, and he did the largest ever funded uh, NIH study looking at spine surgery outcomes and found that you know, for some patients, for some surgeries, uh, and patients who have certain characteristics, spine surgery is really, really effective, and for others it's just not. And that's the kind of studies, those are the kind of uh, outcome studies that we need to continue to do. And I think for chiropractic, some of the key questions are, you know, identify who, who, what are the characteristics of the patients who we can most help? And then what is the best treatment plan for those kind of patients? Because when we looked at this, there's a lot of variation in how frequently uh, patients are seen by chiropractors, how many visits there are by chiropractors, um, what, are, what are their primary modalities of treatment, what are their, uh, uh, you know, how often do they see them, uh, how, what's their recidivism rate, how much do they kind of, can come back with the sale of the, if, if the back pain recurs and things like that. And I think there are identifiable characteristics of a good treatment plan, a good provider, what actually works given a patient that's got certain characteristics and needs. And I think that's really got to be defined in chiropractic. There's a lot of work uh, to do there. And then to figure out kind of what's the complement. So we, we know kind of what spine surgery does and, and how effective, what's the most effective way to treat back pain from a medication standpoint and whether the long-term effects and short-term effects, what's the most effective way to use physical therapists for back pain treatment, and then to figure out, and then once we know that, we can let patients make more informed decisions. And there may be an economics, they call it a domination strategy, 
it might just be some that you, you would always default to. You say, okay, no matter what the back pain, as long as they don't have, you know, a hernia, they don't have a foot drop in their hernia, their disc is herniated, um, and they need kind of an intervention, a surgical intervention, or just bed rest to get them up and get them discs down. Um, and what we need to do is is treat them. Uh, we, we need to we need to take this one path, and we're going to do that for six weeks, and then we'll reevaluate to see how things go. And I, I think that is identifiable. I think there are, there would be common treatment uh, pathways and common guidelines to get through that initial evaluation and workup in the six weeks of treatment for a second evaluation for patients who need it. And that would be a really good uh, thing. So once, if you could do that, you could drive out incredible amounts of waste uh, in healthcare for back pain, which include you know, overuse of diagnostics, overuse of, uh, you know, MRIs and radiographs, overuse of visits, overuse of medications, uh, uh, those kind of things that kind of really drive up costs and I think probably just uh, don't improve outcomes at all. Right, right. Um, and to follow up on that, um, you were part of a, a team that was, uh, you had a article published in Spine Journal of this year uh, entitled Multi-State Stakeholder Recommendations for Improving Value of Spine Care. And there were four evidence-based themes that came out of it. So I just want to quickly go through those. One was developing uh, commonly defined groupings of spine pain patients. Uh, and that's something that you've talked about trying to identify, for example, who um, uh, who might be able to respond to a certain kind of treatment, perhaps, and uh, identifying who might need to go to a surgeon, etc. Um, misuse of care providers, avoiding patient harms, and establishing and using on a broad scale methods to learn from actual patient care. I think we've talked about all of those so far in our discussion, but is there anything that pops out in your head uh, since we're talking about value in spine care? Yeah, well, I think, so just to kind of reiterate those is that, uh, so the defined grouping, different patients will have different characteristics, and uh, even things like whether or not they're pursuing disability has huge impact on their potential outcomes, right? So to, to be able to compare, look at value creation, you need to have some common groupings, because it's just not fair, and that would be like telling, saying, oh, we're going to look at value for cancer. And we know that if you have a glioblastoma, you're going to die, or, or say outcomes from cancer. If you have a glioblastoma, it's really, really bad. And if you have, you know, uh, some kind of a minor uh, skin cancer that can be excised, you're really, really good. And that would be totally unfair to, to group those into one group and just say, now we're going to look at the value and outcomes for the treatment. Um, that, that wouldn't be fair. So we need to be specific about that. And then we need to think about what is that pathway so we are not using healthcare providers. And in particular, in that, uh, that paper, we talk about there's a really interesting conundrum because the specialists, like the neurosurgeons, really don't want patients who don't want surgery. They don't want to be seeing them, right? That's not kind of what they do. So we should wait. We should have patients who have gone through this kind of self-assessment and understand what their treatment options are. And, and, you know, what their condition is likely uh, to evolve into if they don't get surgery and then have kind of made a conscientious decision to pursue surgery, that's who we want going to the surgeons. The surgeons don't want other patients. 
And the patients kind of will be, if they don't, aren't really sure that that's what they want, they're just going to be frustrated and feel like they're being talked into something that they don't want. Similarly, on the other side, the primary care physicians and the spine, the, the uh, chiropractors, the chiropractors don't want to be seeing patients who need surgery. That's, that's a really bad mix, right? So we need to figure out a way to, to appropriately evaluate patients so the patients get to the right place uh, where they can get the kind of care that they want and need and only that type of care. Uh, and then avoiding patients' harm, uh, that would be kind of the same thing, that you're going to avoid a lot of harms by just getting people to the right uh, place and, and not having delays in getting them there so we have an efficient pathway to get them uh, into the kind of care that they want and need and that's good for them. And then the key, the thing I really haven't talked about so far is uh, what we're considering is, as a registry. We need to figure out from actual patient care what works. There have been a lot of studies and a lot of research kind of uh, settings, uh, and, and they can study kind of general stuff about what works, but what we're increasingly learning in healthcare is the need for having um, uh, you know, less kind of expensive randomized control trials and more pragmatic trials or more use of things like registries where we can just see how is the care being provided and use kind of big data analytic techniques to identify patterns of care that seem to be most effective, again, for a particular grouping in the spine patient. Um, so that's kind of what needs to be the next step. We need to, to set up a mechanism for collecting that those data and actually have chiropractors on the ground who, who are not hooked in with a research network or anything like that providing these data so that we collectively in the nation can learn what's effective. You know, how many visits should you have? What should be the uh, content of those uh, visits? What kinds of uh, diagnostic and evaluative care should be are, are the most effective and the most helpful and what kind should be avoided? And I think only by doing that on a broad scale Will we be able to find kind of what uh, find out what kind of uh, you know processes and delivery pathways and treatment techniques are actually the most effective for given sets of patients? Yeah, very good. Well, I know that the listeners of this podcast would be really excited to, for opportunities like that. So uh, when that comes uh, to coming to happen, please let me know and I'll share that with everyone. That's great. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, next thing on the list is how doctors of chiropractic supply healthcare services and how patients use such services. And you've published many papers on chiropractic, and, and I'm really excited about each one of them, but I only we only have time to discuss uh, so many of them. The first one, the first one um, from 2016 was a paper on per capita usage of chiropractors and Medicare spending on manipulation. And you looked at the opioid issue, opioid prescription, and you looked at chiropractic. Can you tell us about that paper a bit? This was in JMPT? Yeah, this was in JMPT. Yep. And so a higher per capita supply of chiropractors and Medicare spending on CMT were inversely associated with younger oh, right. disabled okay. Medicare beneficiaries? Right. Yeah, so sometimes you do, um, do what are just called associative uh, studies, right, which we're just looking at, we're looking at two variables here. We were looking at the per capita supply of chiropractors, and we were looking at four younger disabled Medicare beneficiaries, so a small group. We were looking at the proportion of uh, patients in that group who got opiate 
uh, prescription in a particular year, and whether they were, I think we looked at whether they were, you know, single a single prescription or a chronic dosing. Uh, and those were just two available data uh, elements for us, and we could then simply correlate them on uh, across 306 geographically defined hospital referral regions. So in the U.S., we, we've done, you know, there are obviously 50 states, and we've divided up the country into 306 hospital referral regions where kind of care delivery kind of occurs, is the idea. And the belief is there might be different cultural um, if, uh, you know, aspects of care delivery and uh, other factors that make care in each of these 306 uh, hospital referral regions a little different. So when we simply correlated those, we found that where there were higher um, supplies of doctors and chiropractic, there was lower use of opiates in this particular population. And while you know, whenever you do an associative finding, there's no causality can't say, yes, this is, the direction goes this way, because it could go the other way. It might be that um, low opiate, that, that uh, doctors and chiropractic are attracted to uh, places where they under, they don't prescribe many opiates, right? You just can't tell the direction of what's happening. But you can find, you can, it just is an opportunity to identify something interesting for further study. And what, given, like I said earlier, that chiropractors cannot prescribe, they don't prescribe opiates, and given that back pain is a pretty prevalent uh, problem in the U.S., it makes one think that one possibility is actually that the directionality goes that where you have more chiropractors, we've already shown that where you have more chiropractors, there's more use of chiropractic, um, and maybe that that is creating some kind of substitution effect for the use of opiates. And so clearly this is an initial study, it was a brief study, and it was just looking at associative findings, but it makes you wonder whether there might be an opportunity to follow up studies to demonstrate that when you have more chiropractors, there might be actually less reliance on opiates and pain medication than uh, if you, when you have fewer chiropractors per capita. Okay. Yeah, great. Thanks for going over that. Um, another paper from, again, 2016 in JMPT was about older multiply comorbid patients who used uh, manipulation uh, from chiropractors during their chronic low back pain episodes. Uh, they appeared to have lower overall cost of care, shorter episodes, and lower cost per episode day than patients in the other treatment groups. Can you tell us a little bit about that paper, how that came about? And what you yeah, found? Yeah, so that was a grant, an NIH-funded study where we looked at, again, medic, this is older Medicare patients who were concurrently enrolled in Medicare Part A and B, um, and, and uh, they had multiple comorbidities. So they all had um, a neuromuscular condition, a chronic low back pain, but they also had to have uh, uh, some other kind of neuromuscular skeletal uh, condition and they and some kind of a psychiatric disease like depression or anxiety or uh, sleep problems, something like that. So when we when we look at these, so this is a special group of patients. Again, it's getting back to this idea that something will work for certain groups. This is a very complex, very high cost, very uh, medically intensive using group of older patients. And so when we looked at those, and we looked at everyone, like you said, everyone had a chronic low back pain episode. Chronic low back pain episode was defined as, I think, being three months long. Uh, we, uh, when you looked at those patients, we could identify patients who, who 
only saw a chiropractor, who only did not see a chiropractor, right? Only saw medical professionals that but never saw a chiropractor. And then and then uh, two groups of patients who saw both. Uh, and the both some saw a chiropractor first and then some saw a chiropractor later in their episode. And the, the group, the costs and health service utilization and even outcomes for the different groups were all pretty different. Um, when you, patients who just use chiropractors had really low costs. And they had uh, shorter episodes of care. They, they had a little bit higher recidivism rate in that they would have higher, uh, you know, return of um, low back pain later. But, uh, but overall, their costs of care were lower and their costs per day were lower. If you look at the people who use only medical care, who do not use any chiropractic care, their costs were the highest. And their costs per day were the highest. And, and a lot of that cost, probably the challenge, of course, in this is when you, know, you can do a lot of chiropractic care for a lot of people for the cost of one hospital stay in, uh, uh, in a patient, right? For in sure. Patient. So, so these patients, you know, they, most of the cost uh, differences were due to their use of hospitalization and some, there were some differences in cost of medications, in particular some opiate medications um, were more used there. Uh, and in the middle groups, it didn't really seem to matter that much for whether they get chiropractic care first or second. Um, but those were kind of intermediate in all of these measures, in the length of the episode, in the uh, cost of care, and stuff like that. So I, I think uh, kind of the, the interesting thing that came out from a policy piece here is uh, and we were able to use kind of some very sophisticated uh, statistical techniques, including uh, something called propensity scoring, where you can account for the reality that patients who just use chiropractors are a little different from patients who just use uh, physicians and never use chiropractors. They've got different demographics, uh, different age and race uh, makeup. Uh, they live in different parts of the country. They have different. Uh, baseline disease states, so we could correct for that here, and we still found a difference and found that the chiropractic care users were kind of less expensive um, than the others. And so we, we, uh, when we looked at that, it, it makes you kind of wonder from a policy perspective whether Medicare might kind of use chiropractors or suggest chiropractors as a first-line treatment for patients who come in with back pain, for these multiple comorbid patients who come in with back pain, because if you can get similar outcomes for lower costs, you've improved value creation. And if you can do that by substituting chiropractors for some of the uh, you know, medical interventionists and things like that, then you might get some better outcomes at, at a lower cost, or at least similar outcomes at a lower cost, and that would uh, eliminate waste. That was kind of the finding of that paper. Yeah, that's really interesting. Another thing is that chiropractors in our research, we haven't really looked a whole lot at multiple comorbidities of patients. We tend to be very isolationist, I think, when it comes to our randomized trials. We have people with back pain of a certain time period, and we basically exclude all other conditions. I think expanding... Um, this kind of research line is really uh, not only interesting, but I think, as you say, could save uh, could save money. And I'd be really interested to see the other, you know, quality of life measures and things of that nature as well, in addition to the to the cost. But that's uh, you know, hopefully something that uh, well, that's, we'll get to. 
Yeah, and I think that actually is exactly the point when we say, you know, these multiply comorbid patients are very likely, just because they have multiple things going on, they have kind of a different set of outcomes than someone who just comes in healthy who has a little bit of a background, right? Right. And so, again, we don't want to mix. When we're comparing value and value creation, we don't want to mix those two groups of patients. They should be evaluated separately, right? Exactly. And and so that's the importance of identifying different groups for analysis, um, but also the importance of doing that kind of a registry so that you can capture, if you can capture that these different patients do have different kind of characteristics and different numbers of comorbidities, and some matter more than others and things like that, if we can look at that, then we can really target our medical interventions and say, hey, people like you 50-year-old women who are slightly obese, who have depression and back pain that have lasted for six months or more, are going to probably do best with this kind of treatment. So let's try that first. And it's gonna, and if we put you on a bunch of opiates, it's going to turn out really bad. So let's avoid that one like the plague. <laughs> and, and, and then you can kind of do much more you know, customized care patients by, by extracting what works from the entire population and not just from a few studies, uh, particularly when there's just not information on uh, Like you pointed out, there's just not a lot of information on somebody. Yeah, yeah, there for sure. Kind of uh, mixes of uh, patients. Uh, I mean, it's, it's complex. Everyone, every patient's a little different. It's tough to do. You know? Right. And, and, you know, those are the real battle conditions, right? I mean, that's what people have. So <laughs> our studies should reflect that. <laughs> Another paper that uh, you published also, again, in JMPT in 2016 was uh, a survey, and it looked at uh, U.S. adults and their perceptions of chiropractic. And generally speaking, uh, in the paper that you uh, looked at or studied, uh, the U.S. adults had positive perceptions, but a relatively high proportion also had negative perceptions of chiropractic care, particularly at costs and the number of visits required by such care. And I certainly hear that, um, for example, out in the community, I'll say I'm a chiropractor and, you know, uh, some people, it, it's it's one of two things. It's either, oh, that's great. I go to chiropractors and they save my life, this type of thing. <laughs> or the other, or, oh, I have to keep coming back for the rest of my life kind of thing. Um, well, I'm interested in, in what your take on this study is and, and how we can make change on that. Yeah, so, so I agree with you entirely. I think, and we, we say this, when there's exposure to chiropractors, and even, interestingly, we used in, uh, I think in this study or maybe a different one that was, we still use that same data set, we look at the supply of chiropractors, and, and where there's a higher supply of chiropractors per capita, there are more positive perceptions. And people who use chiropractors who have actually had experience using chiropractors have better perceptions of chiropractors. Right? So some of it is kind of fear of the unknown. They don't know what they've, uh, you know, they don't know what chiropractors do. They're confused by it. One interesting question we asked that was in the broader survey, wasn't in the paper, but was kind of how long does it take to be a chiropractor? And some people thought it was, just, you know, kind of just out of high school and stuff like that. So I think when there's lack of information, people don't know, uh, they're kind of, they don't know what, uh, they're, they're uncertain. And so they have different perceptions. So we found kind of this familiarity that breeds not contempt, but breeds kind of appreciation. And people who have seen like, uh, uh, chiropractors have uh, better perceptions of them. They think it's more safe and stuff like that. 
they do, you, you see among those, there's this, this problem, I think, within the chiropractic profession, which is one of the reasons we want to use a registry as well, which I'll get to in a second, but you see that some patients have had bad experiences with chiropractors, just like they have with you know, physical therapists and physicians and stuff like that. And uh, some of the bad experiences that people have used, uh, for people who have used chiropractors, the, the untoward experiences that they sometimes have had is that they feel like they're getting too many visits or they're not really sure about the techniques that are being used or they feel like they're kind of being oversold on something, that they came in for one thing and now they're trying to be upsold on a bunch of other stuff. And, and uh, so I think that that should be useful information to chiropractors in the marketplace to say, you know, when, when two things, it, you know, if that happens, you might lose a client. But one of the things I, lose, I learned in business school is if someone's got a negative perception of you, they're something like 13 times more likely to share that than they have a positive perception of you. So trying to oversell on one patient might actually have a really bad impact on their practice, right? For sure. <laughs> if someone's turned off, they're going they to tell a lot more people than if they just got who are really satisfied with, with the care they got. Um, so I would be, so, so they should be a little cautious about that. And, and I think that's where this registry idea of actually practicing what occurs in real life would be incredibly helpful. Because uh, in, in doing that, you could say, well, this is kind of normal. And then a, a, a chiropractor could say, yeah, this is what a typical patient gets. It's 10 visits or 8 visits or whatever it is. A patient with your kind of conditions, this is what the registry says, 90% of the patients get this kind of level of care for this long. So that's what we're, we should anticipate. Because I think as a psychiatrist knowing this, and as a business guy, you know, if you manage expectations, you're going to do pretty well. I think it's when people get up, they get upset when, when the expectations haven't been managed well, right? When they have very different expectations than what's being delivered. Really on either way, unless it's just, unless, unless they're wowed by overperformance, that's a good thing. But uh, certainly if they see something that they don't understand, it's going to be confusing for them. So, uh, so that's, that's kind of what we found is that there are variations in perception, that these perceptions vary across the country, um, that they vary with regard to whether a patient has been seen by a chiropractor before, um, and that, that you know, chiropractors actually might uh, do well by, by uh, you know, kind of bringing this kind of thing up and say, hey, you know, where, where people have more familiarity with chiropractors, uh, they tend to like us and trust us and things like that more. So maybe it's just something that, that has to do with experience and with a chiropractor and kind of and, and trying it out and seeing if you can break down some uh, barriers there. And and there again, I think from a policy perspective, talking about the paper we just talked about, if Medicare suggested kind of endorsed use of chiropractors as a first line treatment for certain patients, it would not only save costs, but also improve exposure. And our research suggests that that exposure increase would actually uh, uh, improve perception of chiropractic as a general concept. And one, one interesting thing we also found, which I understand from talking to chiropractors, kind of common, is that uh, they tend to really like their chiropractors, but they will have some more hesitation about chiropractic. Um, and that, that, that's a difference, you know. So, so I think there again, use of registries, demonstrating what does work from a chiropractic perspective, what is effective, how many treatments are effective, what type of treatments are effective. Those things would be really helpful in addressing that perceptual issue. 
Oh, that's really awesome. So, well, let's take it one step further then. Um, how, how would we go about integrating chiropractic with other healthcare providers? Uh, how would we go about it, I think, is tough because, uh, you know, even in, in med school, it's not really integrated. Chiropractors have their own curriculum. Uh, when I went to med school, obviously a long time ago, but there were physical therapists were integrated into our curriculum, and we would see the physical therapy students uh, training along with us in med school, and so you got a sense that this is all integrated and part of it. And that's just not really the case very much with chiropractic. There tend to be separate campuses, not necessarily all that affiliated with um, medical, you know, uh, medical treatment centers, and that's kind of a challenge. I think the and even how they're set up is you don't see a lot of integrative medicine. You're seeing more of it. There's not a lot of co-located. Uh, chiropractors uh, in in settings where healthcare is delivered. Now, I know in the Department of Defense they're doing that more, in the VA they're doing that more, so there's some vanguards that are doing that, and some health centers that are uh, bringing in chiropractors, I think, just to try to probably ride on the uh, you know, uh, complementary alternative medicine bandwagon a little bit to bring in business, but that, but that helps because you want to have uh, Chiropractors accessible. It's just very difficult. You know, one, it's kind of like the uh, Amazon thing. With every click you have to do, you, you lose fifty percent of the business. And with every other visit you've got to go to, it's just going to be that much more of a disruption in trying to get care to a patient. So integration of chiropractors in uh, other healthcare settings might be a, a way to do that. Certainly, you know, the insurance issues and the gatekeeping issues are probably. Uh, barriers to access to care for chiropractors. Um, just the different payment methodologies might be uh, different barriers. I think these perceptual problems might be challenging and they would be really helped by having some of these decision aids that show patients, yeah, this works, this is not dangerous, here's the kind of outcome you can expect, here's the number of visits you might be able to expect. This person who we're referring you to does this with 98% of their patients, so it's not going to be kind of a bad chiropractor, just as we should do the same things with this, so we're not going to refer you to a quack physician. Um, we There are quack physicians that are quack chiropractors, and you want to kind of curtail your, your referment to uh, those types of people because it doesn't help with patient care. So I think the more we can use things like we've, we've been discussing here, both uh, data analytic studies as well as evaluation of registries and engagement of chiropractors and patients in the development of those registries, the more we can learn about what actually really works, who it works for, when it works, what the length of treatment is, what type of treatment modalities are provided, and, and which of those all add up to uh, what, what adds the most to value and what can we eliminate that doesn't add to value in order to get our patients you know, healthy and uh, on the other side without bankrupting our healthcare system and our economy, I think is the key here. Yeah, very good. Very good. Now, a goal of this podcast series is to motivate and assist practitioners and students alike to pursue research careers. And being a researcher, I just wondered if you could offer any advice. Yeah, uh, you know, I love what I do. I, I get to around and think all day so if you like doing that uh, it's great it's great work you can work with teams you can uh, actually I think have an impact on what's going on in the ground and as I said earlier on when we were talking about 
know, my transition from healthcare delivery to research is more based on who can I impact. I can impact a much broader group of people by uh, writing papers and influencing policy that can improve care and value care delivered for a, a much broader population. So I think uh, that's, that, you know, if that motivates you, I think to be a good researcher, you need to like to write. Uh, that's a lot of doing research is writing. You need to uh, have no ego because you write papers, you do incredible amounts of work, and they're rejected. <laughs> so, uh, you know, you should, you should have had a number of experiences uh, dating where you were just rejected flat out uh, with no recourse, and you, and you can survive that. Your ego can survive that because that's going to happen a lot. Um, and uh, so it's a little frustrating from that perspective, but it also, you know, makes you proud to have a paper. You can show your mom that you know, <laughs> published and stuff like that, and that'll make her proud and think she was a success and stuff like that. Uh, and it's, um, so that's all, that's all fine. So it feels good. It's, uh, uh, but it is, you know, it's, it's very, very different from clinical work. The hours are really different. The setup is different. Uh, who you work with and the skill sets you need are very, very different to be successful in uh, research. Like I think, you know, I really, what I really like is a combination of them where you can both uh, get some sense of what, you, I think you, you lose touch of what's going on from a clinical perspective, that's not so good, um, because then you, you, you kind of lose relevance. But if you can maintain that through some kind of clinical connection and also understand then the problems, have that feed your research questions so you can say, these are the problems I'm encountering, these are the problems my patients are encountering, how can I do a study that evaluates that, and then do the study and make policy recommendations to actually address that. That's a nice kind of full circle, and it's very satisfying to kind of go through that circle and figure figure this stuff out. I mean, you talked earlier about motivations for this, and one of my motivations was I had a, I had a sister who um, died at age 49 uh, from opiate uh you know, prescription opiate-associated complications. We've been on, she had back problems for about 25 years, was put on opiates, and uh, never kind of recovered from that. Went from being a productive lawyer to being someone who was on Medicaid and needing, uh, you know, needing uh, support. And uh, that's a really sad thing, to have this stuff personally impact you. And it, may, it motivates you to think about alternatives for care, because she is not the only one that has happened. There are a lot of people out there that things go wrong and, and they just kind of get hooked into a system and they get lost in it and think bad things happen. And that's just not pretty. So to try to you know, find a motivation within you that makes this research very compelling for you and very interesting and kind of personal, whether it's a clinical experience or a personal experience or maybe both, that can be very motivating to think about uh, a career in research, which I find, like I said, is incredibly intellectually stimulating. And a lot of you know, while it's is also quite a bit of fun. Oh, that's that's very good. Well, I really appreciate you being on the interview today. It's been a lot of fun chatting with you, and I've learned a lot. This was just fantastic. So, thanks again for coming on the Chiropractic Science Podcast. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you.